Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. $42 billion. That is the amount of money grossed by films at the global box office in 2019. Impressive? Definitely. Surprising? Probably not. Especially when you consider that global box office revenues have increased year over year since 2005. That was, of course, until COVID. As you'd expect, the pandemic has devastated Hollywood, resulting in an unprecedented 71% decline in global box office revenue. Worse yet, we all have to go another year without Daniel Craig's No Time to Die, a title that has since taken on somewhat of an eerie meaning. Putting the absence of James Bond aside, movie ticket sales have actually been on the decline for nearly two decades, despite a steady increase in population over the same period. So, if people are going to the movie theatres less often, and they are, then what exactly is driving the growth behind global box office revenue? To answer this question, you have to understand the economics of Hollywood. How do movies get funded? What is the role of government subsidies and alternative revenue sources? How can a movie gross more than its budget and still lose money? And finally, what are the economics behind movie theatres and their $20 buckets of popcorn? Hollywood, the undisputed movie capital of the world. This 30-square-mile area plays an instrumental role in shaping Western culture. In addition to this chief role, Hollywood is also a very material component of the US economy. If you've ever sat through a movie credit reel, it's little wonder why the film and television industry supports nearly two and a half million jobs. For perspective, that's greater than the number of people employed as farmers or miners. Keep in mind, these are good-paying jobs. According to the Motion Picture Association, the industry pays more than $181 billion in wages each year. That's impressive because it also means that people employed in this sector earn around 47% more than the national average. Although, when you consider how expensive it is to live in Los Angeles, that's essentially what you'd expect. So, what exactly is driving Hollywood's growth? 20 years ago, the answer would have been in-person moviegoing. The studios made the movies, the theatres showed the movies, everyone was happy. Things were simpler then. But considering that you're now watching this video on YouTube, it's probably not a surprise to learn that the way that we consume content has changed drastically. As a result, US moviegoing has been on the decline for nearly two decades. But how can there be growth at the box office if fewer people are going to the movies? The answer is mostly twofold. Increasing inflation and decreasing demand. Going to the movies is simply more expensive than it used to be. In 1910, the average price of a movie ticket was a mere 7 cents. Today, that number is a relatively staggering $9.26, a 132-fold increase. On top of this, fewer people are physically going to the movies, despite an increase in relative population. 
Notably, some recent films like Greenland and Disney's Mulan have cut out theatres altogether and are now releasing films online directly to viewers. This may sound like a novel concept, but it's not. Shark Tank star and billionaire Mark Cuban pioneered a very similar distribution concept in the early 2000s, the dawn of online HD video. Long before Disney and Netflix, it was Cuban's Magnolia Pictures which released films through the internet and theatres at the same time. However, it's worth noting that this concept wasn't actually successful, as evidenced by the fact that you probably haven't seen any movies using this dual distribution model. Arguably the biggest beneficiary of all of these technological advancements in the past two decades, excluding you, the consumer, have been the largest film studios, also known as the Big Six. The Big Six dominate the box office charts. Part of the reason why these studios are so big is because they have big budgets. Budgets that are often in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But how do movies get funded? Movies are companies. Not just in the profit-driven sense. I mean movies are literally companies. Just like Apple, Google and Australia. Studios incorporate their films for a number of legal reasons. But the main reason they incorporate is to raise capital. In this way, films are like pre-revenue startups. They don't have a product yet and they need funding. Just like the startup world, there's an investor ecosystem for the movie world. An investor ecosystem that looks for the same things that all investors look for. The opportunity to earn solid returns from a venture managed by an equally solid management team. Naturally, this raises a couple of questions. Who provides the funding to the studios? And do you need a nine-figure budget to make a wildly successful movie? To answer the latter question first, absolutely not. Case in point, the supernatural horror film Paranormal Activity. Made on a shoestring budget of just 15 grand, the film brought in nearly $200 million. Another notable success is Super Size Me, a documentary about fast food, which in its own right is also a real-life horror film. Like Paranormal Activity, the movie was shot on a modest budget, $65,000. It also crushed it at the box office, raking in over $29 million. Most of the viral success behind these kinds of indie films is attributed to the internet. Tech-savvy filmmakers now have an infinite array of ways to advertise their movies. Sites like YouTube can make your trailer go viral. And after going viral, you can then sell your movie's rights to a platform like Netflix or Amazon Prime. But the internet isn't only disrupting how films are distributed, it's also disrupting how they are financed, namely thanks to crowdfunding platforms, which enable you to invest in movies and receive royalties. As for producing big-budget films, the investors in these movies are usually private equity firms and hedge funds, although it's not uncommon to also see family offices as investors as well as ultra-high-net-worth individuals. Almost always, these investors are limited partners, or LPs, meaning they take a passive ownership stake and don't get involved in the movie's production process. This makes sense because hedge funds and private equity firms are often looking to allocate capital towards what financial analysts call uncorrelated return streams, which is a pretentious way of saying an alternative asset that has an income stream unaffected by the forces that usually affect other types of traditional assets, like stocks. Music is another perfect example of this, one that is also very synergistic with the movie industry. Look no further than any Sony Pictures movie featuring music from, you guessed it, a Sony-owned record label like Columbia Records. But even with the financial backing of large institutions, studios rely on two other important funding sources, paid product placement and government subsidies. Paid product placement. It's the reason why you see so many brand advertisements in movies, some of which are just laughably unbearable. Yes, 
and it's the choice of a new generation. For studios, paid product placement is a critical fundraising tool, one that allows them to retain a larger ownership stake in their movies. Without it, a studio would have no other choice but to raise more money from their investors, which in turn dilutes the studio's ownership. So how big of a deal is paid product placement? Well, if you're an indie filmmaker, it's usually not even a remote possibility. Good luck trying to get Apple to sponsor your home movie. But if you're a major studio, it's an entirely different story. Consider the James Bond franchise. The upcoming film No Time to Die will reportedly feature over $90 million in paid product placement, which equates to about 36% of the movie's entire budget. It's worth noting that James Bond is more of an outlier. Most movies don't receive paid product placement revenue anywhere near those numbers. But perhaps the most interesting thing about paid product placement is that sometimes you don't even know it's there. And that's the point. It's meant to be subliminal. You're not supposed to notice it. The reason films don't disclose their brand placements is simple. It's not legally required. The movie industry argues that making disclosures mid-movie would be disruptive. Which makes sense. After all, fans of James Bond already know that Daniel Craig is getting paid to drive that slick Aston Martin. The real ethical issue here, one that is arguably criminally overlooked, is paid product placement targeting children. Children who are easily manipulated and don't have any concept whatsoever of the dynamic between brands and their non-transparent advertising. Case in point, the sugary pastry company Cinnabon sponsoring the B-movie. Movies aren't even the biggest recipient of paid product placement dollars. Not even close. That crown belongs to TV. This lack of disclosure is a double standard that doesn't receive nearly enough attention. If a YouTuber is paid any amount of money to promote anything, the FCC strictly requires a creator to be transparent and disclose such information to their audience. Failure to do so can result in a hefty fine and potentially jail time. On the other hand, film and TV essentially get a pass. This leads us to our next topic, Hollywood's very powerful lobbying industry and the role of government subsidies. Lobbyists for Hollywood argue that the movie business is tough, so of course they need a tax break. Now hearing this alone as a state legislator should be enough justification to at least pause, because as mentioned before, if you exclude 2020, Hollywood has never done better. As a reminder, global box office revenues haven't declined in over 15 years. The idea of a booming movie industry, which doesn't even make any money on its films, needing a tax break is a little ridiculous in and of itself. Even the independent non-profit tax foundation describes these incentives as failing to live up to their promises to encourage economic growth overall and to raise tax revenue. These tax breaks are called MPIs or movie production incentives. They are exactly what their name implies. Tax incentives for the movie industry to incentivize film production. Or at least, in theory, that's what they're supposed to do. They're provided on a state-by-state -state basis and most states have them. Originally conceived in 1992 by the state of Louisiana, the concept was to bring film production jobs to the state. And to their credit, they have created jobs, albeit almost always at a very high cost to the taxpayers. In Massachusetts, for example, one study found that each film job created by the state's MPI program costs taxpayers a whopping $324,000. As any rational economist will tell you, taxpayers always pick up the tab for ineffective government subsidies. But wait, you say, what about independent filmmakers? Surely it's not only the most powerful studios that don't actually need these subsidies who can take advantage of them. Unfortunately, not. Before being eligible to enjoy these sweet tax breaks, production companies are often required to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
And as if that wasn't bad enough, many states even offer MPIs with cash rebates on qualified purchases. Now to be clear, we're not talking about tax rebates, we're talking about production cost rebates, meaning costs that are incurred by the studio which the studio then submits to the state for reimbursement, specifically costs that are considered qualified, a percentage of which is kicked back to the studio, typically around 20-25%. to in a way, it's the same concept as cashback rewards, except to be eligible for these cashback perks, you don't need good credit, you just need to be a big studio. These production costs submitted to the state for reimbursement are sometimes artificially inflated. You tell the state what you paid for the qualified purchase, and they send you a check for 20-25% to of the amount that you claim. It's basically the honour system. If all of this sounds like it's prone to abuse, that's because it is. And indeed, it has been abused. Several film directors have been charged with tax fraud for telling state governments one inflated number and paying their production staff a significantly lower number. As of the time of filming this video, 22 states offer cash rebate programs. The percentage varies from state to state, as does the definition of a qualified purchase. If all of this corrupt corporate lobbying sounds like it's out of a movie, it's not. If there's one movie that'll probably never be made by Hollywood, it would be on this very subject. If movies can be such a great investment, then why do so many Hollywood films never generate a profit for their investors? Despite having tax credits, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, tens of millions in paid product placement, and to top it all off, extraordinary sales at the box office, which even exceed their budgets. Two words. Hollywood accounting. That's not a term that we came up with, it's what the industry calls it. Hollywood's accounting methodology is so infamously opaque that it even has its own Wikipedia page. The scheme works by using questionable legal and sometimes illegal expensing systems to reduce profit. Consider a movie studio that also owns a subsidiary costume company. On the surface, it's a perfect synergy. Studios make films, films need actors, actors need costumes. So if you own a studio, why not also own a costume company? It's a textbook perfect vertical integration, right? Well, not so fast. These structures don't work in reality because there is an obvious conflict of interest. Namely, the studio can mark up the price of their costumes, purposefully overbilling their own film. This type of conflict of interest profit shifting happens all the time in Hollywood. Infamously, the creator of Spider-Man, Stan Lee, was promised 10% of the net profits from anything based on his characters. Although the case was later settled with Marvel, Lee ultimately never received royalties. Lee is by no means alone. Screenwriter Ed Solomon claims that his Sony-owned blockbuster Men in Black is still not in the black. This is after nearly a quarter of a century since its release, and despite grossing over $600 million off a $90 million budget, not to mention three sequels. Movie studios have precise meanings assigned to terms like net profit. In the practice of law, the term you see here is what is known as a defined term. Almost all contracts have them. And to be clear, there's nothing inherently sinister about defined terms. That is, unless you're a film studio that decides to define such important words in ways that are intended to be dare I say, subjective, and thus open to interpretation in the courts. But this raises a different question. Are movie studios really the villain here? One group that would likely say yes would be the venues that show the studio's films. Movie theatres. Movie theatres, or cinemas as our viewers in the UK like to call them, are not in the movie business. Movie theatres are in the refreshment business. Because AMC has the largest theatre market share in the US, we'll use them as a proxy for the industry. According to their 2019 annual report, food and beverage sales accounted for nearly a third of the company's total revenue, clocking in at $1.7 billion. 
Even more impressive, the net margins on that revenue, 84%. This of course begs the question, if theatre companies like AMC generate over a billion dollars a year in profit from food and beverages, then why does this industry as a whole lose so much money? Well, in a way, the losses are a tad exaggerated. If you look at the last five years of AMC's financial performance, it certainly doesn't look great. Sure, on a taxable basis, AMC lost $149 million in 2019. But if you add back in depreciation, which you should because it's not a real capital expenditure and therefore distorts the real financial picture, you can see that AMC had a real net profit of $300 million. But even $300 million in quote-unquote real net profit of $5.5 billion in revenue isn't a great business. Put another way, that means your real net margins are only 5%. So why is this? Food and beverages are obviously not the problem. That segment of the business is a cash cow. The answer to this question has to do with the way theatres charge studios to show their films. In the first week of a film's premiere, theatres may only receive 20-25% to of the film's ticket price, with the remaining 75-80% to going to the studio. In the second week, the revenue share changes, with a higher percentage of revenue going to the theatre and less to the studio. By around week 6, the theatre is usually receiving the majority of the movie's ticket revenue. This continues every week until the movie is eventually no longer shown in theatres. This adaptive revenue share is precisely the reason why your popcorn is so darn expensive. If you think that studios are simply squeezing movie theatres, well, you're not alone. Disney received a ton of backlash after they told theatres that they'd be receiving a 0% revenue share on all ticket sales during the premiering week of their new Star Wars film. That may not seem like a fair deal, but if you run a movie theatre, what are you going to do? Suppose you own a theatre and decide not to show the new Star Wars film because you don't generate any revenue from the ticket sales. You risk losing potential customers who will take their business to a different theatre that is showing the new Star Wars film. In the eyes of Disney's critics, they are like the monopolising Death Star, crushing theatres one galaxy at a time. But to the capitalist Jedi looking in from the outside, we can see that such an argument is a difficult one to win. Disney isn't a monopoly. They're not using Darth Vader's invisible force choke to strangle theatres into showing their movie. No, not even close. The reason Disney has the pricing power they're criticised for holding is because they simply make great movies. That is the beauty of the intergalactic system we call free market economics. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.